Genesis 1, 1 1-5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. This is the word of the Lord. So we are at the very beginning of a lot of things. We're at the very beginning of a new series called Alignment. So my goal in thinking through this series was how can, was basically thinking through the, the church is in a bit of an identity crisis right now. There's a lot that we can't really articulate in ways that we used to be able to. There's a lot of words that don't carry the same meaning that they once did. So, for example, all the mainline Protestant denominations are on the decline. Uh, One of the fastest growing groups in our nation is referred to as the nuns, which are those who claim no affiliation to any sort of religion. And they currently make up 23% of our country. Christians that used to be able to take their identity for granted now find themselves more complicated to explain. Words like evangelical carry with them more political connotations than they do theological connotations. And so in the midst of this, in the midst of that sort of complexity, it can be easy to miss what the basics are of our faith. What are the fundamentals, the core, the essentials of Christianity? Because there's a lot of noise around what makes up our identity as Christians. But what's truly the signal amidst all that noise? What are the fundamentals? As Christians, it can be easy to get caught up in the conversation and forget these basics that at one point were inspired such a sense of wonder. And as a non-Christian, I think it can be so difficult to just discern what really is the Christian faith. From the outside looking in, it may look like something of, why would anyone want to be part of that? Well, this series, Alignment, is meant to bring alignment to the fundamentals of our faith so that all these disjointed conversations that are happening on sort of a national scale, we can bring into alignment what it is we really believe, be able to articulate ourselves both to ourselves, understanding who we are, and to others, so that we might be understood for what the, tr- the true core of Christianity really is. So this alignment series is just going to be six weeks, and it's going to take place in three parts, So we're going to do two weeks on the Bible, two weeks on understanding the Bible, two weeks on understanding ourselves, and two weeks on understanding our mission. So if you've been at L2 Church for any amount of time, that triplet probably sounds familiar. That's the basis of all of our ministry here, is the Bible, helping you to understand your Bible, helping you to understand yourself, and helping you to understand your mission. Those are critical things because those relate to what we think are the really built-in questions of our humanity. It's the questions of the Bible, which are, who is God? Is there a God? Can he be known? The questions of ourselves, does my life have meaning? 
Questions of mission. Do I have any sort of purpose? Is there something I should be doing? Is there some ought to my life? Something I ought to be doing? Those basic fundamental questions can get drowned out in a complicated discussion of what is Christianity in the United States. But those are the ones that we're going to zero in on. How can we better understand the Bible? What does it mean for us? How does that inform ourselves? How does that inform our mission? So this is the Bible, part one, uh, which sounds like a History Channel show. Uh, probably, yeah, don't listen to whatever the History Channel says about the Bible. That's just free pro tip. They're always wrong. <laughs> and if they're right, it's on accident. All right, so to begin with, uh, these deep questions we're going to posit actually have answers. So the who is God, can he be known, who am I, what is the purpose of my life, these questions actually have answers. And just by saying that, I know I've already divided the room. Because some of us here, these questions have answers, and what you've begun doing is going through the list of answers that you already have, and now you're listening through a lens or through a filter of fact-checking. So you're going to fact-check the answers that I posit and then compare yours to, to the answers that I'm positing. So that's option one. You're sort of a knower. Option two is someone who's hopeful, hopeful that you might be able to actually discover some answers to these deep questions, that there may be, that these riddles may be unspun. That's sort of a learner's disposition. And uh, finally, uh, I think just the talk of answers has already just put off some of you. Because the idea that these things have answers, uh, it just seems honestly kind of foolish, maybe a little quaint. Right? Because you've considered that, uh, you've considered these questions so long and at such depth that you realize that the rational conclusion to come to is they don't really have answers, at least not answers that apply to all of us in any sort of meaningful way. Maybe answers that apply to some of us individually. But if we're claiming that we have answers that matter for all of us, we're probably not making a real claim. We're probably just making some sort of power play. So the issue, before we discuss what we're bringing into alignment, what we can know that brings us into alignment, we have to first discuss what it is we mean by knowing. Because we're all coming at this with very different ideas of what it means to know. For some of us, we already do. For some of us, there's optimism that we could. And for others, we imagine that there's no way that we could possibly know. Now, we live in a culture that takes knowing very seriously. Uh, and that's be because we, are, uh, we live in a, a Western culture, and so we're informed by Western ways of thinking about knowing. And so most of the time when we think, what does it mean to know something, we're thinking in terms of an absolute certainty. We need to come to an absolute rational certainty about 
uh, about something in order to be able to know it, which means there's an absence of doubt. If we know something, that means we don't doubt something. We're coming to it with an absolute, rational, airtight certainty. And if it can't be known with that sort of absolute, rational, airtight certainty, then you're just deceiving yourself. You're playing a little game with religion. It's more like uh, some sort of therapeutic fairy tale that you're telling yourself rather than bringing yourself in line with a type of reality. So the most famous person to uh, uh, it really, it really experiment with this and who sort of grounds it in our Western thought is a French philosopher named Rene Descartes. And Descartes performs this thought experiment and he says, I'm going to disregard any, anything that I thought I knew that I don't know with absolute rational certainty. Uh, Descartes was paid the highest compliment in all of academia because his name was turned into an adjective, which is the best thing that can happen to you if you're an academic. So this is referred to as Cartesian certainty. And uh, he was totally high-fiving all his friends on the way home. I got adjectived. Um, so there's a uh, Mr. Worcestershire also. Same thing happened to him. Um, there's, it, it was, it, it's referred to as Cartesian certainty. So what he does is he says, I'm going to doubt and disregard everything that I can't know with absolute certainty. And he says, well, my senses have, someti have sometimes deceived me, so I can't trust the information that they're giving me. So I can't really trust that these are my hands or that this is my body or whatever information I'm receiving from the outside world. I can't really trust that that's actually there. And he says, well, there's one thing I can't doubt, and that's that I'm doubting. I know that I am doubting. He says, so I can't doubt that I'm doubting, and if I'm doubting, I'm thinking, and if I'm thinking, then I exist. So I think, therefore, I am. And that becomes the foundation, what he builds all of his knowing upon. He says, now from this foundation, I think, therefore, I am, I can develop a full and complete worldview that removes any doubt from my mind, and I can know with absolute certainty. I don't have to be plagued by the doubt that infests these deep questions that I have in my life. So this perspective, this foundation of absolute rational certainty is, uh, it has led to incredible advancement for humanity. It's led to a, a, an incredible trust of the sciences right? Because we're approaching things, looking for this absolute rational certainty. It's led to a real advancement in the way that we can look at and understand the world. But when you apply it to these deeper questions of life, it starts to feel a bit flimsy. And then when you really prod at this, I think, therefore I am, as the foundation for all of your knowledge, when you really poke at that, you see that this itself is actually pretty flimsy. And there's a reason for it. It's uh, referred to uh, as the Cartesian circle. 
And what that means is Descartes' logic, his whole project, is fundamentally circular. Because he's saying, I'm going to base, use as the grounds for all of my thinking and all of my reasoning, I'm going to base that entirely on a trust in my own reason, my own ability to reason. And then I'm going to prove with that reason that the way I'm thinking makes sense. So you see that he starts with this improvable concept, which is my reason can be the basis for all knowing, for all understanding. And then he proves that with his reason. It's circular. See, it's a base that doesn't actually exist. It's just vapid. The project itself is totally and utterly frustrated. So what happens then, as thought sort of progresses, and people are pursuing this sort of absolute certainty in all that they're looking for, what it turns into is an absolute skepticism. You see, if at the heart of any of our knowing, if at the heart of any of our reason is just a trust in our own reason, which can't be proven in any way, then nothing can really be known. We can't know anything. We can't, know, we can't convey any sort of truth to each other. These deep questions will forever go unanswered. And to say anything else is just an arrogant denial of the way our reason actually works. So that sort of skepticism is articulated uh, really well by uh, Nietzsche. And he says, he says this. He says, what then is truth? For, for you Bible scholars, maybe that question sounds familiar. What then is truth? A mobile army of metaphors, metonyms, and anthropomorphisms. In short, a sum of human relations which have been enhanced, transposed, and embellished poetically and rhetorically, and which after long use seem firm, canonical, and obligatory to a people. Truths are illusions about which one has forgotten that is what they are. Metaphors which are worn out and without sensuous power, coins which have lost their pictures and now matter only as metal, no longer as coins. What Nietzsche is saying quite beautifully, although I think it's wrong, but he says it really well, <laughs> is that when we're trying to capture truth, when you get honest with yourself about what the foundations are for your truth. And you prod and you say, this is based completely on just my own reason. You realize that the floor you thought you were standing on isn't really there. What you're exchanging as truth is just an illusion. And the only difference is time has passed and you forgot that it was an illusion. There's nothing there. Total skepticism. Also, total 
meaninglessness. That's where Descartes' project of making the foundation for our knowing in ourselves ends. It ends in an inability to know anything, an inability to have any sort of mutual relationship where we both see something outside of ourselves that we agree on. There's no such thing. So then, where do we begin our quest for alignment? What is the foundation that we build upon? When we say the big questions of life have answers, are we just lying to ourselves or worse, manipulating others? The Bible begins by providing the foundation that isn't in ourselves, but in God. So we'll go ahead and move on to, into our text for the morning, uh, which is Genesis 1. We'll look at a plausible foundation that it provides. And it takes place right off the bat in Genesis 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, this all-too-familiar verse makes this incredible metaphysical claim that God pre-existed all of creation. That all of creation starts in God, and it takes place in him. So that means that God creates everything you've ever smelled, touched, tasted, interacted with. Those all existed in the mind of God. And he makes them out of or from nothing. Just by the word of his power, he makes the world that we experience and live in, the place that we're looking to make truth claims about, he makes exist. The very reason that we're using to deduce what is true or not, he comes up with and speaks and it exists. From nothing, he creates what is. From what is unseen, he makes what is seen. In the beginning, God created. Immediately, the Bible provides us with a foundation for our knowing that doesn't take place within creation. It takes place outside of creation. And that can be incredibly frustrating because it shows that God is not the type of thing that can merely be reasoned to, starting with us. It shows that God is not the type of thing that can be experimented towards or tested to prove the existence of. That if we're using a human-centered metric of absolute certainty, you won't be able to get to God, which means we need to approach him in a different way. That's why Descartes' plan is so frustrated. That's why our, our seeking to know God just by looking within ourselves is so frustrated. And those questions remain. Because in the beginning, God created the earth. So we aren't looking for him like we're looking for something else in creation. He's very other than that. And so all of a sudden, the basis for our knowing, where we've looked for what could be a base for our knowledge, begins to shift we realize we have something better in God. We can see how he, be, uh, how he creates. We get this picture in Genesis 1-3. It says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. You see, 
God creates by commanding. And that's known as fiat creation, which is just by a tiny little Italian car. <laughs> uh, no, just by command. He says it, and it exists. For God to speak is for God to make. He doesn't make in the ways that we do. We gather and organize and compile, and we take from what is, and we make something else. But it all is. God doesn't create that way. God takes from nothing, and he makes whatever he wants. Just by his word. Just by God said. Derek Kidner captures the importance of this phrase, God said. He says, the simple phrase, and God said, precludes some far-reaching errors and stores up a wealth of meaning. These eight specific commands, calling all things into being, leave no room for notions of a universe that is self-existent or struggled for or random or divine emanation. And the absence of any intermediary implies an extremely rich content for the word said. So we're going to spend some time hashing out this quote. Because when Derek Kidner says something, he's an excellent Bible commentator, he's not just making a list because it sounds good to have a list. See Nietzsche. He's making a list because these words really mean things. The universe, these eight commands, leave no, no notions of a universe that is self-existent. So what does that mean? It means we don't believe in a universe, in an infinite universe with a finite God meddling inside of it. It means we believe in an infinite God who created this finite universe. And the universe didn't create itself. So that means if we're looking for anywhere to ground our meaning, to ground the true meaning of our lives, for any sort of true, real purpose for our lives, we can't look for it inside the universe. That's not where its beginnings and ends take place. Those only take place in God. So when you look through your life and you see what you're setting your hope on to give you meaning and you realize that this is just something in the world, this is your career, this is your marriage, this is your children, this is some hope there, you think this will give me some ultimate meaning, you're pretending as though the universe were somehow self-existent, that meaning just inhered in the universe. That's not the case, because God said and then the universe existed. Meaning preempted the universe. So the universe is not self-existent. The universe is not struggled for. It's the next thing Kidner points out. In a lot of ancient... Uh, the word just slipped my mind. Origin stories. In a lot of ancient origin stories or origin myths of the universe, they take place and they describe a story of struggle where the gods were fighting. 
Uh, the Babylonian origin story is the god Marduk kills another god and then out of his blood makes people and out of its tail makes the heavens and out of its body makes the earth. And the point is that our universe is built in, it's fundamentally based in struggle and power. And those are the fundamental realities of our universe, is struggle and power. Now, if you move that forward into a modern origin myth that we have, uh, the Darwinian worldview says that the fundamental aspect of life is struggle and power. And so if you're going to move and if you're going to live in this world and if you're going to attain any sort of meaning, they're going to take place in the realm of struggle and power. That's where meaning exists. That's all that dictates our lives is a will to power. It's the Babylonian origin myth. But our world was not struggled for. God said, and it existed. Which means that the basis of our existence isn't a struggle and it isn't just power, but it's expressing God's goodness, his joy in creating, as God steps back and says that it is good. God said, and it existed. Our world is not random. You see, what happens is, what we see here is this provides the necessary framework for the scientific method to even be able to work. Because we see that God created a reasonable universe that was ordered, and then he created us to align with this universe in such a way where we can actually understand it and we can use our minds to grasp what the universe is. This is what frustrated Descartes' project. Is Descartes has no reason in a random universe to trust his own mind. He has no reason to trust his own reason. And therefore, the whole project is totally undermined. In a Darwinian worldview, this is true as well. In a world dictated only by some unexplained will to power in a random universe, you have no reason to think that your brain evolved to, tell, to describe the world to you accurately. It didn't evolve towards truth. It evolved towards preservation, multiplication. That has nothing to do with truth or meaning. These are totally different values. But God said, which means the world is not random. Next, Derek Kidner says, this is not some divine emanation. And what he means by that is, we don't live in a world in which God is the world. Because God didn't take himself and make the world. God said, and the world was, which means the world is this other thing from him. This isn't a sort of animism in which you look at the mountains and you see God, as people say. What they mean is they see God's handiwork. You don't see God. So why is that important? That seems, you, you may be thinking, that seems important for like, you know, some like isolated tribe. Uh, but that's not really important for me. And the reason it's important to see that God is other than the world 
is because it keeps us from looking for the things of the world to be God to us. It prevents us from putting that sort of weight on it. Because in order for ultimate meaning to be in the world, in order for God to be in the world, that would mean we would need some sort of infinitely, ultimately meaningful world, ultimately meaningful creation. And that's not what we see. That's not what we see God offer. Excuse me, that's just not what we see in the world. It, it isn't a divine emanation. There's a uh, um, great quote that sort of gets to the base of the problem with the world being a divine emanation, which is infinite, and our meaning is based in the world. And um, this is from Stephen Hawking's book, uh, Short History of the Universe. What is it? Brief History of Time. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. Um, Stephen Hawking actually went back and forth with his editor. <laughs> I want it to be short history of the universe. He typed with his eyes. Um, we, uh, and he recounts a story with Bertrand Russell, who's like a famous atheist, and uh, who is supposedly giving a lecture on the cosmos. Um, I'm sure this conversation never happened, but it's a great story. And he gives this lecture on the cosmos and describes, you know, the way that the solar system works and the way that it's all held together. And uh, this is the quote. It says, at the end of the lecture, a little old lady at the back of the room got up and said, what you have told us is rubbish. The world is really a flat plate supported on the back of a giant tortoise. The scientist gave a superior smile before replying, what is the tortoise standing on? You're very clever, young man, very clever, said the old lady, but it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> so the point is, the problem with the universe being an emanation is it would need to describe an infinite universe where you find meaning in this infinite regress. And what that means is when you look for meaning in the world, the experience of that would be a lot like the experience of our looking for meaning in the world is. Just out of your grasp. Always able to move one step back. It's turtles all the way down. It's going to be this promotion. And what's the experience of that like? It isn't. The promotion you thought would be security revealed a deeper insecurity than you thought was ever there. It's going to be in this relationship. And all of a sudden, once you finally have it, you feel more vulnerable than you've ever felt before. You feel lonelier in your marriage than you ever did before, and you thought that was the answer. Your meaning is an infinite regress. And that's, the good news is, God said. That's where ultimate meaning lies. God is other than the world. Which means that you don't have to, as Russ said beautifully last week, rest your heart on things that will inevitably break your heart. Finally, Derek Kidner's quote, he says that uh, for God creating the universe, God creates the universe in an unmediated way. 
which means that God doesn't use a tool. God doesn't use another God to create the universe. God doesn't partner up with anyone to create the universe. But God creates the universe just, he says it, and it is. He uses no mediator. It's immediate. What that means is that ultimate meaning terminates in God. That if you have a search for knowing, if you have a search for ultimate meaning, your hope is it can be found in God. But if you're going to continue wandering around the world, wandering around the reason of your own mind like Descartes did, you aren't going to be able to find it there. And if you're going to try and wander around the experiences that you can gather in your life, you won't be able to find it there. Because God isn't the world, he's other than the world. Or you can give up and just say that it's random, but you'll be forced into living like a hypocrite. Because no longer can you be offended if it's random. No longer can you be frustrated by injustice if it's random. God is other than the world. God spoke, he said, God said, and the world existed. God as the creator. In the beginning, God. That's the reason that we can seek to know anything. If that is your foundation, then it becomes reasonable to gain, to, to seek a sort of alignment with your thinking and with your knowing. You can begin to hope, perhaps these questions have real answers. Outside of that foundation, I don't think there's any hope. So then, the question, as we move to the end, is how do we know? How? <laughs> We've established that it, because God said we can know things, because God said we can move through the world in a way that actually makes sense, that isn't based on ourselves, but based in God. But then how do we? And the Bible describes this actually quite clearly. In Hebrews 11.3, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. So how do we know? We know by faith. So, I know what you're thinking. Ah, the faith cop-out. This is where you say something like, well, if you knew, it wouldn't be faith. <laughs> and then walk away. Um, bet you never thought of that. But here's the thing. We know by faith. But that isn't strange. This isn't something that's just relegated to religious circles. They're the faith people. This is the way everyone does it. This is the way the universe is made. Everyone knows first by faith. They start with faith. That's the way Descartes did it. He said, he doesn't say this, but he does it. He presupposes my reason works. My ability to reason is the one infallible source in the wilderness. 
in the universe, <laughs> in the wilderness. I don't know why I said that. Uh, but it reminded me of Big Thunder Mountain at Disney World. This here's the wildest ride in the wilderness. Um, that joke really plays in Orlando. There's... Uh, okay. Speaking of trains, get back on this thought train. There's a... He says, my reason is the one infallible force in the universe. And so I'm going to trust it. I'm going to put my faith in it. And so starting with faith, then he knows. And that's exactly the way Hebrews articulates it. By faith, we understand. You start with an improvable premise. And it's from there that you begin to understand. What the Bible points us towards, however, is not like Descartes' frustrated plan, but because it's not a faith in ourselves, but it's a faith outside of ourselves. It's a faith in God, a faith that God said. And because God said, that means I relate to my knowledge, I relate to the universe in a very different way than if I am the source of all meaning. Augustine, uh, St. Augustine, he grasped this really well. He says, uh, believe so that you may understand. It's a famous quote of his. When he described uh, what he was doing when he was meditating on the scriptures and why he would spend so much time questioning and moving through these things, he'd say, I believe so that I may understand. Uh, Anselm, a later guy, a later monk in 1100. Uh, he says, I do not seek to understand in order that I may believe, but rather I believe in order that I may understand. Uh, I was reading the Wikipedia entry on that uh, statement. It says, this has been bashed as an uncritical acceptance of questionable concepts. You see, what Anselm was really doing is he's just uncritically accepting questionable concepts. No. What Anselm was doing is being honest about the way we think. He's saying, I don't seek to understand in order that I may believe. That's impossible. I believe in order that I may understand. That's the order our minds work. That's the order of creation. God said, then there was light. We believe in order that we may see, in order that we may live coherently. Because otherwise, we see injustice, right? And we say, this is, this is unjust. This need, we, need to, <laughs> we need to advocate for the poor because there's a value in them. And then someone would say, well, why? Well, just because. It just seems right. But deep down, you know, they die and become dirt just like everyone else, just like we do. What's the difference in a meaningless random world? In order to live with a sense of justice, you, you must then have, uh, just get comfortable with 
lying to yourself at the base of what you really believe. But if you believe and then understand, you see, it provides this real framework for how we enter the world. We see injustice. We say we need to bring justice to that. Why? Because God said, and he created a good creation. And when he made humanity, he imbued them with his characteristics, with a certain type of dignity. And although the world has been corrupted, he made it good so that we need to seek the goodness that's in it. How can you prove that? <laughs> prove, what do you mean? <laughs> right? I'm, I'm believing first, but it provides an understanding of the world that's radically coherent, that actually works in application, that allows you to not live as a hypocrite. You have faith, and then you understand. Solomon captures the same idea in Proverbs. You, once you start to see this, you'll see it everywhere. But Solomon captures the same idea in the Proverbs. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's not advice. That's just a fact. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Otherwise, you're based in nothing. Anyone who takes a Philosophy 101 class knows that when you leave that class, what they've taught you is you can't prove anything. <laughs> and that's because they didn't begin their knowledge with the fear of the Lord. At its base, everything is circular. Unless God said. And that's our base. So why has there been so much ink spilled? Why is there so much effort put into trying to get to this sort of absolute certainty, get to this sort of removal of any need for faith, trying to reverse the order where we can understand it and know it completely, then we'll believe in it, then we'll have faith in it. Why are we doing that sort of a project so much? Why was Descartes doing that? Why has like all of academia been doing that? Well, let's not act like uh, we have no skin in the game. Right? Because if, if it's not true that God said and the universe existed, then we're not accountable to God. Then he can't tell us what's right and wrong. Then we get to be the center of meaning for the universe. And we get to describe what ultimate meaning is. See, that seems pretty valuable. We have no accountability towards our creator. If we can say, well, with absolute certainty, I can't say that he exists. You see, we're not disinterested actors in this. We don't want to be accountable to God. Because once we are, then we are merely creatures relating to our creator. Creatures from the dirt, looking up at an infinite God, saying, we've denied your existence completely.
God as the creator grounds how we see the whole world. And so when we say that we start by putting our faith in the word of God, we're describing a whole way of viewing all of existence. We're saying this provides the reason that we can reason together. This provides the reason that we can seek justice in the world and that we think that there's a way the world not just is, but a way the world ought to be because God created it. But in order to come to terms with that, we have to get right up close with what we don't know and say we need to move on those things in faith. And that's a horrifying, even humiliating thing. But that's exactly the way that God treats the things that we don't know. And he's constantly pushing us into them. This is the way that uh, God responds to Job, prying at really similar questions. He says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? This is actually one phrase. Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? We're in something that is so much bigger than us. We live in a world that we do not bestow meaning upon, but that God bestows meaning upon. And so if you're looking for meaning in your life that's outside of God, you won't find it. That project will be forever frustrated. So look at what you've been pursuing. Look at the way you're structuring the solutions to your problems. Don't take your problems too lightly, but follow them down to their most ultimate and deepest conclusions, and then be honest there. We live in a world that's constantly describing God to us. Then in a sense, God is constantly revealing his attributes to us in the creation. And our minds are so corrupted by sin that we just can't see it. And so this Sunday we began by talking about we, how we need the word of God generally as a foundation for knowing anything, as a foundation for any meaning in our life. That if we don't get that God said is the beginning of understanding, then we'll miss it all and we'll live lives of deceit. But now with our corrupted minds, we can't just come to these conclusions. We needed something to fill the gap for us so that we could begin to see the meaning that God had imbued in the world in the way that he put it there. And so that the, these creatures from the dirt that are shaking our fists at God saying, you don't exist because I can't reason from myself to you so that God might not destroy those creatures 
but might save them. What we see in the story as it continues is that God said becomes God actually dwelt among us, entered into our creation, that we might know him clearly like a friend and might see the real meaning that we've been missing in our ordinary lives this whole time as we've looked to locate that meaning just in ourselves. So, bit of a cliffhanger, but it's part one. (laughs) Next Sunday, we'll be looking at why the Bible is the Word of God. So, I hope you'll be here next Sunday to join us for that. Um, Some questions. Non-Christians often make the claim that reliance on God as the foundation of absolute truth is an unprovable cop-out and therefore invalid. How are we to have meaningful dialogue in conversations where that belief is present right off the bat? So what I was hoping to show is sort of a way in to that conversation, which is like in, like, in evangelism or like apologetics, like, we all want to be like the, your argument's so bad, yeah, I'm a Christian because I'm smart. And that's not the case. Um, but what I, what I was hoping to show is a way in, which basically says, look, the playing field is level. Because at the basis of the assumptions of your worldview is just faith in something that you can't prove. And it, that's true of mine as well. So now let's talk about which one makes the most sense of the world. Try and describe to me your compulsion for, look for the good that they're doing, for for the way that you're seeking harmony in your job. Describe to me why that impulse matters in any sort of ultimate way. Does your worldview make the most sense of that or does mine? I think that's the way in uh, to conversations like that. So I hope, I hope that's helpful. What does the Bible mean when it says God saw it was good? Yeah, great question. All right, everybody settle in for another 45 minutes. <laughs> so what it means, <laughs> this is hard. The world is not neutral. The world is not full of neutral components, right, that are either being used for good or used for bad. The world in its essence, the structures of creation are good. And because God made them good, when they were corrupted by our sin, God didn't throw it away. But instead, He sought to redeem it, to bring it back to its normal state of goodness. The way that we see the world now as corrupted by sin is abnormal. If things feel off, you're right. Things are wrong, and the world was created good. So that means there's incredible value to the creation. Incredible value. 
we often slip into ways of thinking of the world as just neutral. And it can be used in good ways, can be used in bad ways. At its core, the world is good. Which is answering your question by saying it again, I know. But uh, the world is good. It's not neutral. No further questions. All right. Thanks for your questions today. If you have any more questions, we do backstage, which is an open forum Q&A the third Wednesday of each month at 6.30 here. So um, keep an eye out for that. This was about beginnings. And this was about putting us in a place where we realized that in order to begin anything, in order to begin a pursuit of learning anything, we have to start where God starts, and that's with himself. This is a story that's about him. Even his redemption of us is truly about him and his glory and his goodness being made known and experienced. That's our hope, is that if you stick with us, as you stay with us, that you'll be able to see a good God who creates a good creation, who graciously saves us, although we would do all sorts of mental gymnastics to avoid his very existence. We're about to take communion, which is a symbol of Jesus' broken body and his poured out blood, which is the very thing that saves us, creatures from the dirt, and allows us to know God, where all meaning comes from. So approach it humbly. Approach it understanding the limits of your own mind that you can only start with faith. You don't have the option of starting with an absolute certainty. But I promise, I know this is true, that if you move towards him in faith, he moves towards you. In fact, <laughs> if you move towards him in faith, it's only because he's moved towards you. So remember that. We sing because we're grateful for that. All right, let's pray. Father, that we have an audience with you, that you hear us, that you listen, that you would care, that you entertain these thoughts that must just seem so petty and foolish to you, these questions that plague us so much. Lord, your patience and grace is unimaginable. It's so vast. It's an ocean without bottom or shore. Thank you for showing us your patience and your grace as we wrestle through these questions. Lord, forgive us for basing our lives fruitlessly off of things that aren't you, for making the basis of our thinking it just our own limited, stupid reason. Lord, when you provide us with yourself, that we may know the truth and see the world as it is in all its glory that's constantly pointing towards you, Lord, open our eyes that way we may see things clearly and see you. We praise you for your grace and patience with us. We lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.